This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Human Action Podcast, one of the only podcasts out there that I'm aware of that focuses exclusively on books. And, you know, we mostly stick to the really hardcore econ and political theory stuff, but every once in a while we take a break and we uh, look at maybe a current book or a book that gets a little farther outside of our normal topics. And this week is one of those weeks. I'm really pleased to be joined today by Ross Benish. Now, Ross may not be a name that's known to all of you. He wasn't known to me up until a couple months ago, but I'm glad that I was e-introduced to him. Uh, he has written several books over the last couple of years. Uh, and more importantly, perhaps, he's actually written for a lot of major outlets like Esquire, Wall Street Journal, Deadspin, Rolling Stone, The Nation. So he is really very much an up-and-coming journalist and author. And he's written a book that I'd like to draw to your attention called Rural Rebellion. And the subtitle is How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. And he originally hails from the town of Brainerd in Nebraska, which is in part the subject of this book, but it's really much broader in scope than that. And I know a lot of our listeners and in my own work, we have exhibited an interest in you know, how the political world and the political organization of society seems to be failing us, how we're tired of everything being so politicized, how we're tired of economics and journalism and politics and other institutions in our society seeming to divide us more rather than bring us together in cooperative ways. And we're very much tired, uh, perhaps, of ideological orthodoxy and of this uh, you know, notion that we have to beat each other's throats all the time, because it's obviously a very unhealthy way to run a society. So there's a lot of those themes present in this book. So all that said, Ross, I want to thank you a million for your time today. Hey, thanks for having me on the show, Jeff. Well, so for starters, genre, you describe this sort of as a political memoir of sorts. In other words, it's got some biographical element to it. But I, on my part, I was reminded a little bit of maybe Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam, which is, gosh, that's like 20 years old now, but also Charles Murray's Coming Apart with its Fishtown in Belmont. Uh, so how, how do you describe the book to a stranger? Uh, to a stranger, I, I tell them that it's, it's kind of like what's the matter with Kansas, but I try to not, uh, you know, poop on my hometown mm -hmm. and I try to empathize with the, you know, the, the people I grew up with. So I, I, I say it's like a, um, a more memoir empathetic version of that book. I, I also will describe, I'll bring up Hillbilly Elegy cause that's recent. And I feel like, um, non-scholars are, are familiar with that. Like the books you, you mentioned are, are very popular among, um, you know, an academic readership. But if I'm just talking to a a guy in the street who doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to politics, I'd say, well, it's, you know, it's got some themes that are similar to, to Hillbilly Elegy. Of course, um, I probably have more journalism in my book, but, um, you know, between What's the Matter with Kansas and Hillbilly Elegy, mix those two together is somewhere in between there. And so I'm curious, were you writing this prior to COVID mostly, or were you writing this primarily in 2020? No, uh, almost entirely uh, before COVID. I, I did a lot of edits during COVID and it was like getting shuffled through the production cycle. But um, it was kind of weird, you know, having this book. It's pretty set in stone. Uh, you could change some things by that stage, but not a ton. And then this crazy thing happens and I don't know what all it's going to affect. And uh, I was able to throw in a few COVID references at the end to make it seem timely. But um, most of all the reporting and stuff was done prior. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it just strikes me that we already had this red state, blue state thing. We already had Trump, which is a huge, hugely divisive figure in American politics. And now, since you've written this, along comes COVID, which has divided us along lines of like masks and lockdowns and vaccines and vaccine passports. So it's not getting any better. No, and I, I've, I've been convinced in the past year that anything can be a wedge issue. You know, in the book, I talk about some, uh, you know, brought the topics that are often used um, in campaigns like abortion or immigration. But now, I mean, I feel like we've gotten down to a really low common denominator on if we're going to judge our neighbor on whether or not he has a mask outdoors. So um, it has been it's been a disheartening year. Well, I I must say I really enjoyed the way you tell a story in this book. It's a narrative which I think is always more enjoyable than just a pure sociological or political study. And also the fact that you give chapter titles, uh, which, which conjure up the underlying issue. In other words, there's a chapter that's primarily about abortion, a chapter that's primarily about immigration, a chapter that is about uh, party politics, but you weave in a lot of other uh, elements into the story. And, and I think you did it very skillfully. I really enjoyed the book, uh, for, for starters. And people could find this book at Amazon. Again, it's called Rural Rebellion. It's for sale now, and it's in a 2021 book. It's always fun to get a book that's that fresh. You know, you, you just enjoy reading it. And more importantly, you can follow Ross at Ross Benish, R-O-S-S-B-E-N-E-S. So there's a non-existent H on the end, which is not silent. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I'm just going to go ahead and ask you, no offense, would you say at this point you're coming at this book from a, a, a progressive left perspective? And I know your background from the book. Yeah. No, yeah. Uh, I, I would say I am. I, I, I'm, I'm left of the typical Nebraskan, for instance. And I'm, I'm a young guy. I'm 31. I, I live in Brooklyn. Those probably say things about me as well. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would say left, left to center, though. Not, I'm not... Um, I got a long email the other day day about someone taking issue with the way I described Antifa in a few paragraphs. Mm -hmm. So um, they that side has taken issue with me. So I'm not um, that far left, but I, I, I probably left of and more progressive than your general audiences. Well, I was struck in the introductory paragraph, excuse me, the introductory chapter when you're describing some of the folks in Brainerd and, that you know, and you know them. Um, and how folks in Brooklyn would view them perhaps as having voted for Trump. And you say that that progressives in big cities oftentimes view rural folks as deranged. And I th thought that was really interesting language because it, I, I think it helped me to respect your perspective as an author because while some of your progressivism bleeds through in various chapters, I don't think most – a lot of progressives would say that. Yeah, you know, I, I I wanted to bring a little humanity to um, my friends and family who are more conservative to me. And, you know, when I lived in Brainerd, Nebraska, I myself was more conservative than I am now. So I think there's a lot about how our environment influences us. Even if we don't think it is, I can sit here and think I'm immune to all the messaging, but I went from being conservative when I was in a town of 300 to, you know, now I'm more liberal when I live in this uh, leftist enclave. Uh, it certainly had an effect on me and I believe on many others. So when you don't interact with people, though, who live in environments way different than you, it's easy to just say they're misguided or they're deranged or they're stupid. But, you know, my brother voted for Trump. He's valedictorian of his high school class. 
I think he just comes to his conclusions way differently than me because he lives in an environment where things are reinforced way differently than where I live now. You know, a lot of young people leave small towns in the big city, but sometimes they're very, uh, they, they speak in a very hostile manner towards their childhood, but you clearly love your town and its people. Yes, I, I, I do. And I hope that came across. I, I am critical at times of some parts of my hometown, like some of the things that the church has done in the past. But I, I do definitely love Brainerd. I dedicated the book to it. I, I mean, I still have a great relationship with my parents. I, I'm going home uh, in a few weeks here to be part of my cousin's wedding, and I'm looking forward to it. So yeah, I always enjoy going back home. And, you know, if I really hated my hometown or didn't like it, I wouldn't have wrote a book about it. I would, you know, <laughs> things that I don't like, I don't spend that much time. A book requires a lot of time. So I only really write about things that I, I care about, you know. What did your fiance think of the town? She was kind of blown away because she's she's from New York here and uh, lived her whole life in this state. And she she was never used to um, there being so much space between towns. You know, <laughs> like they'd be like, we'd be driving like 10 miles of cornfields through like the next town. She's like, what's this? I'm like, well, that's just that guy's house. And uh, his uh, post office box is probably registered to that town. But, um, you know, that's just the that's just the acreage or that's just the farm. You know, it's that's not a town or anything. So that was interesting. And I remember... Um, I went to my sister's house and uh, they had a spare bedroom from their uh, son who was in college. Had gone, uh, he, he was gone, so we're going to stay in there. And uh, they had to remove a bunch of guns that were sitting on the bed so he could like lay on it. And I think that was a little bit of a culture shock going mm. into a place and saying, "Okay, well, we got <laughs> we got to move the guns um, so he can make some space." So you know, there are little things like that. But overall, um, I believe she enjoyed it. Uh, you know, everyone treated her nice, and um, she still goes back with me when I when I visit. So I uh, haven't scarred her too much. Well, and you mentioned the town and the state's history uh, where there were, were once a lot more pro-life Democrats. And you also, I think, do an interesting job of displaying the fact that many of the ardently pro-life folks in your hometown, including women in your own family, are not these uh, ogres who want to keep women barefoot and pregnant, but, but rather people who come to abortion from a heartfelt perspective. Yeah, it's uh, easy to um, demonize a pro-life crowd if you haven't been involved with them before. I I see a lot of that here in Brooklyn. I get made fun of when I wear a Nebraskans for Life scarf, for instance, to brunch, which, you know, just light teasing. But uh, the, the, the bigger issue is, you know, you go on Twitter and you see people freaking out when someone uh, claims to be pro-life because they'll say, well, what are they doing for women, you know? But, but people I knew weren't... Um, like the politicians, uh, you know, they they were helping people who were going through issues. You know, there's a lot of teenage pregnancies in rural areas. My my brother uh, had a kid when he was a, a teenager. I saw that a lot growing up, and people uh, rallied around that, and and you know, they they cared for that person. So, you know, stuff like Catholic social services, uh, there's a good genuine thing in the pro life movement that you don't see when everything's portrayed as like people who are picketing something or, uh, you know, giving everyone else a hard time. But yeah, I, I wouldn't classify the people I grew up with as ogres or anything, but you certainly see that online. And if that's your only perception of it, you're going to have a negative viewpoint. But I come to a much different perspective having lived in Brainerd for 20 years. Well, one of the points you make in this book is how skillfully the Republican Party uses abortion as a, as a political wedge and how that things have changed in Nebraska as a result of that. Yeah, you know, so much of our politics now, I feel like, is um, 
about like symbolic things that we get riled up about instead of like really deep policy discussion. And when it gets that way and Republicans are, you know, saying they're going to be against abortion, that really appeals to people in towns where the church is the pillar of their community and they have high religious participation and they genuinely believe that, uh, you know, abortion is, is a tragic thing. And Republicans have just continued to to use that. And, and not just at the federal level. I mean, the Omaha mayor race, city council races, all the way down. I mean, if you've seen Democrats stumble in Nebraska on that issue in um, races across the board. And I also don't think Democrats have done themselves any service on that issue because they've been dogmatic as well, just in the other direction. And when you're in a state that tends to be quite religious, quite pro-life, if the national party isn't letting candidates like that run anymore, it puts you at a huge disadvantage. And I believe that's part of the reason why they've really struggled in states like Nebraska is um, becoming more rigid on that issue. Well, this is a really interesting and unique point. And you make a several examples of this throughout the book where the optics which might benefit the Democratic Party nationally cause a lot of injury to the Democratic Party in Nebraska. So can you expand on that a little bit? Well, yeah, and we can just use abortion as, as an example of that. So um, four years ago, there was a mayor race in Omaha, and there was this Catholic candidate who's pretty moderate. Uh, he described himself as pro-life, and uh, he was trying to unseat a Republican. And abortion activists in D.C., mind you, and mm. in New York, not in Nebraska, created this huge ruckus over this and the uh, you know Planned Parenthood president is out here saying you know how can we you know get aligned with the Democratic Party when they're going to run a man like this you know for the mayor of Omaha and it got to the point where the the DNC chair to appease the 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 abortion rights lobbyist threw the candidate under the bus by name and denounced him and said that well you know a woman's right to choose is, is tantamount and everyone you know must run on that in, in the Democratic Party and that didn't help that guy's campaign. And mind you, this is a mayor race. This isn't a Supreme Court justice or something like that. You know, this isn't a president. Uh, this is what a you know, mayor of a town of 500,000 in the middle of the country, officially a nonpartisan race even at that. Um, so nationally, the DNC chair was able to make good with, uh, you know, this big wing of his party. And that may have helped them in some areas where abortion rights are more favored. But that didn't help them get that person elected to mayor. And they just kind of help the Republican win re-election. But why are we even talking about abortion in a mayoral race? I mean, you <laughs> yeah, might as well Yeah, that's kind of crazy too. I mean, you might yeah, as well yeah. ask the guy about Israel-Palestine, right? He's, <laughs> yeah. he's running for Omaha. Yeah, yeah. I think the original platform was about potholes. Um, you know, mm. the, the things mayors take control of. I mean, you can have an effect on zoning laws. Uh, but it, it got brought up because there, there was a campaign that they brought Bernie Sanders in for. And then... That brought a lot of national press attention. And after that happened, the the Wall Street Journal had an article where they were saying, you know, are Democrats comfortable with this tension of having this pro-life person, you know, being nominated when they've gone, you know, to the left on abortion? And then that prompted a whole Twitter storm. And, you know, it just rolled from there. So it, it started with a, a Bernie campaign rally that got the national press attention that led to lefty Twitter losing its mind for a city they never visited and then led to the DNC chair. Mm. And, um, you know, meanwhile, none of this is affecting the average person of Omaha, Nebraska. Yes, yeah, so we've got all these wedge issues, which are, I guess we can call them cultural for lack of a better term. But 
if you step back a little bit, as you allude to in this book, you know, agricultural states like Nebraska and Wisconsin and Minnesota and Iowa, they have old traditions of, I guess we could call left economic farm, democratic farm policies. So the, the, the idea that people in Nebraska would shift their voting patterns on a single issue like abortion, let's say, and, and deeply distrust Democrats from here on out it is really odd if we think about it. Well, yeah, you know, unless people's jobs have depend, those, those industries are still very huge. But um, the share of Nebraskans who work in the ag industry, for instance, you know, has probably been declining steadily for for a while now. Even even if it's you know a very very large industry, so um, I, I don't think that one issue is quite as uh, salient anymore. And uh, you know, people still want their farm subsidies. I, I don't think they're going to get rid of those, even if they hate big government. But uh, the the really resonant uh, cultural wedge issues, I feel like, have taken more precedence in campaigns. I mean, j- just if I see what the, the politicians talk about, I see them talk more about um, illegal immigration or um, abortion than I do, uh, like, farm policy. Because that's complicated, and uh, I don't know if we have the bandwidth to follow it anymore. You know, property tax gets brought up in the state legislature a lot, and there's a lot of things they could do to alleviate that, but they don't have any real debates. It's, it's It becomes about a, instead they turn to some, you know, symbolic thing that everyone has a personal grievance over, you know, from, from both sides of the aisle. So uh, I, I, I just feel like um, it's become more about those religious or cultural issues than that, um, you know, broad, wonky economic policy that probably has a lot, lot larger effect on people's livelihoods. Oh, I think there's no question. That's nationwide that that's happened. Oh, yeah. Everything that's happening here, too. I use Nebraska as a local microcosm because that's what I've lived 80% of my life. But this happened all over the place. Uh, Everything that's happened here, you can apply to various regions of the United States. Well, one mechanism in Nebraska, of which I was not aware, is that they have a unicameral legislature and that they run for those legislative seats in a nonpartisan way. Now, does that lack of partisan DNR, does that apply to other state races or only to the state legislature itself? That that only applies to the state legislature, but there are many other races in the state that are nonpartisan. But that that's independent of how the legislature got shifted hmm, in the 30s. Okay. Basically, in the, in the 30s, we, we had a Great Depression, and Nebraska wanted to lower um, taxes and, and to reduce government costs. And they eliminated an entire because it's not just nonpartisan; it's one chamber. So they eliminated a whole chamber, uh, which means like over half of the state lawmakers lost their jobs. There's now only 49 uh, state senators total, no House representatives or anything. And it was a, a cost cutting thing. But then they all, the nonpartisan thing is a is an extra layer. So Omaha mayor race is nonpartisan, but that's um that doesn't have any um, relationship to the legislature. Okay, and that hasn't. Uh, helped stave off the, I guess, partisanship or rancor that you describe in the book? It's, I will say the legislature, because it's nonpartisan, and it also has open primaries, which I think has a big uh, effect. Um, It hasn't become as partisan as we've seen, like maybe nearby Kansas or Iowa state legislatures, or as partisan as like our governor or federal races are. But in the last 20 years, it's lost a lot of its norms and characteristics that made it distinct to the point where we are becoming more similar to those 
areas, even if not fully. And, you know, you, you see attacks on, like, if you watched, um, not that anyone probably wants to watch this, but if you watch debates on the floor, if you go to the legislature website, you'll see more unruly, you know, partisan personal attacks than you saw even 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, I wasn't around 20, 30 years ago, but the way everyone describes it is, you know, is a more uh, cordial, nonpartisan body. But uh, that, that, that's been affected by all sorts of things. I think it really went that way starting when we introduced term limits because they're a good idea, but they actually ended up making the parties way more involved because the number of candidates turned over, you know, 50% of the body turned over like every uh, four years. Well, I'm about 20 years older than you, but I distinctly remember, as you describe in the book, some politicians from Nebraska who weren't uh, in this mold of extreme partisanship. Uh, Bob Kerry was the senator. He was a big war hero. I remember him. And also Coach Osborne, Tom Osborne. I mean, yep. talk about a, a winning formula, be a national championship football coach. You can have whatever the hell you want <laughs> in, in a state. And, and I actually used to see him when I worked for Ron Paul in the early 2000s. I used to see him in the Cannon House office building. He was taking the, el- the little side elevator up to the fifth floor because they give freshman members of Congress the worst little tiny offices up on the fifth floor. And this was this guy was not a you know a bomb thrower. No, it, not it, at all. And that's not that's not all that long ago. No, it wasn't. And um, yeah, Kerry. I mean, God, that guy worked across. He he nominated a Republican Attorney General when he was a Democratic governor. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't imagine something like that happening today. O- Osborne. I have a thing about him in the book. In 2006, he ran for governor, and he was by far the favorite because he's he's Tom Osborne. I'm wearing a Nebraska football shirt right now because we, you know, we were a powerhouse, and everyone loves him, and he's a very smart guy. And he lost in the Republican primary, and the the biggest issue that he fumbled on was um, giving in-state tuition to DACA kids, and the, uh, the his opponent went to the right of him on that, and that that worked for his opponent. And um, you know, ever since then, those more laid back, moderate guys who kind of work across the aisle like Osborne, uh, they've just kind of disappeared one by one. And we've gotten to a more really party loyal representatives. Is that gentleman still the governor? Uh, no, he, he term limited out. Okay. And then we had Pete Ricketts followed Ricketts. him. Yes, right. And then, at, you know, Heinemann, we have a weird... Um, so in Nebraska, you can't be governor for more than two terms consecutively. But theoretically, you could sit out and come back. And like, no one's done that. But uh, Heinemann was the guy who beat Osborne. He's in his 70s now. They're contemplating that he may run next year because he hasn't he hasn't been in office for eight years while Ricketts was. So um, he's already served two full terms. You'd think he'd be done, but he, he might come back. But I don't know if he's actually going to do it. Well, when you discuss that primary with between Heinemann and Osborne, and then you have a, a chapter in the book called uh, Soccer Town, which is really about immigration. I mean, it's not a border state. Is immigration somehow a simmering issue in Nebraska? It has become that way since around 2006. And I think that, you know, it became a bigger issue nationally around that time. The parties really kind of transmit what's happening nationally down to a local level, even though uh, Nebraska is not going to be affected by immigration the same way like Texas is. It really became a big issue, you know, the percentage of uh, so the the share of uh, Nebraskans who come from another country is quite small, but we did get a huge increase in immigrants between 2000 and 2010, and that's when it really ramped up. But that's a big increase from a small base, so you kind of have to take it for what it's worth. But uh, it really got hammered on in in those um, in those primary races, and 
the Republicans who were more for um, reform, like like Chuck Hagel, a Nebraskan who worked with George Bush to try to reform immigration, they lost that battle within their party. And of course, you know, we could talk about the, the Democrats' viewpoint on it, but I, you know, they don't win anything in Nebraska. So what the Republicans um, decide to do on that issue uh, kind of determines how the state moves. Well, I, I know a lot of people on the right would react to this by saying, well, you know, that's all well and good. Nebraska may elect Republicans. It may be a red state. But, you know, look at these commie universities they have. And you have a, a chapter basically on the University of Nebraska at Lincoln and some of the problems it's had over the past few years. There was a stupid little dust up with a professor. There was a, a stupid little dust up with TPUSA, which is, I, I think, for, from my perspective, kind of a ridiculous organization. And so just like where I live in Alabama, there are universities and those universities have professors on them. And I think sometimes we get this outsized sense of uh, you know, how the, the radical left is installing itself. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I went to the University of Nebraska and uh, I, I got to say, unless if it's just changed drastically in the last five years, it, it ain't anything like UC Berkeley or, you know, some of these other schools that get called out for this. So when I see some of that coverage, I just kind of question where it's coming from, because, man, most students just didn't give a damn. And, and professors definitely lean left to, to the mo- to most of the population. Um, I think that's in, in, in general in most states, but the ones who are trying to exert their uh, opinions on you were, were pretty rare. A lot of professors, I think, wanted just people to participate, and that was tough to get people to raise their hand, even if they disagreed with them, to start conversation. We're just like, you know, a generation who's glued to our iPhones and have tuned out. Um, that was probably a much bigger struggle for, for the mm-hmm. professors I knew than, than um, I don't know, graphing their... Um, ideology on us. I think a lot of kids, you know, myself, I, I, I definitely moved to the left on some issues when I was in college, but um, it wasn't so much what the professors were saying. It was, it was um, people I hung out with and the things I experienced in um, a college town with like a lot of international students, a lot of gay students that I just never, ever came across in, in Brainerd where, you know, everyone had been living in that town for, you know, all the families had been there for, for generations. And, um, you know, it's kind of isolated. So it was a lot of my life experiences outside the classroom, but that's not the way it's, you know, it's usually portrayed as the the, the university being a leftist indoctrination. But out of that, out of those th- dust-ups you mentioned, nobody came out of that looking good. TPUSA or the university, everyone just looked like crap out of that. Well, you have a sentence somewhere later in the book where you do say, though, about the left is, you know, they won't even recognize that it's a problem that almost all university professors are uniformly yeah. left-winged. And, le- and to the left, I would say not only of their of the students, but maybe more importantly to the kids' parents. Yeah, and, he, and I, um, I sent the book around to people on the left and the right before I published it. Friends of mine, some of them were, were colleagues, because I, I like getting feedback. I remember a really left-wing person mentioned to me, why does it matter what the, what the parents think? And I'm thinking... Because they're taxpayers and they send their damn kids there. My parents pay uh, taxes in this state. They sent, you know, two of their kids, one of their their grandkids there. Why? Why wouldn't they uh, care? Um, you know, they're just. But anyways, um, kind of getting on a tangent there. There's um, there's a lot of stuff coming out of academia where you see people really forcefully protesting stuff that's like pretty small scale, and they're using some really half baked concepts to do it, and that is a huge uh, problem. On the left, I don't want to say they're like, like they're indoctrination camps or anything. Because my experience, the university was a fantastic place. It would, um, they treated me as a you know greatly. I was a young conservative when when I came there, but 
I'm also glad I'll put it this way. I'm also glad I didn't go into academia. I was thinking about it. Uh, I was preparing for grad school for most of my undergrad and um, seeing how um, conformed a lot of the departments have become. isn't making me optimistic. I think Jonathan Haidt um, has done a great job of describing this. Uh, if your um, listeners are familiar with him, he's a NYU psychologist. He's written several books and, and he also comes from a, a left perspective, but I think he's, He's really pragmatic about everything that's happening. I wonder how much social media adds to the, some of the problems you're mentioning in this book, because someone like Hate can tweet something that's you know, pretty down the middle, uh, objective type statement, and just get savaged. Uh, oh, I mean, I mean look at what happened with the Harper's letter. I mean, a lot of those statements in that Harper's letter. For your you know listeners who may not be familiar, Harper's had this letter about free speech. Yes. I mean, if you took a lot of those sentences individually, they're they're kind of just harmless. Okay, sure. And media industry lost its mind and was trying to say these, you know, people were duped into it. And there was all these articles written about it. And it's just, um, it's like a, a group of people um, devouring themselves. I mean, it's just so silly. Yeah, it really is. But, you know, I wonder how your life would be different, how, what, how your perspective would be different. You know, what if you had stayed in Brainerd or nearby? What if you'd at least stayed in Nebraska? What if you'd gone to HVAC and plumbing like your dad? You know, we I think we get a sense from the book of how Brooklyn changed you. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what what's the counterfactual? Yeah, the counterfactual. And I try to think about that, too, as I was writing the book and think about how I used to believe, you know, what how my beliefs have changed. And, and I think the, the counterfactual is I'd be more similar to my brothers who are Republicans, who are uh, pretty distrustful of, of any um, government programs and uh, who... Um, tend to um, stick with the values and perceptions of their surrounding community where they grew up in. Because we weren't, you know, raised uh, terribly differently. We all have different personalities, obviously, but seeing how much our uh, opinions have um, moved, you know, a lot of that's my opinions have moved. Mm -hmm. So I, I, and I, I talk to guys when I go back home who I, I was, you know, best friends with. Some of them I was in their wedding, played sports with, and, um, it's clear to me in some of our conversations how um, far to the right they are on me. And I remember in high school, we were probably pretty similar. And I, it wouldn't be hard to imagine myself in their shoes, um, you know, had I married a local girl and, and took up a trade back home. So that's why I try to not, you know, judge people solely by who they vote for. Because if, if my uh, college girlfriend didn't dump me and I didn't go into journalism and I stayed home, I mean, it's a lot of ifs. Um, I could be a very different person with different um, point of view than I have right now. Well, maybe you've also seen that people who grew up in and around places like Brooklyn, and as you mentioned, people whose families have summer homes and that sort of thing, can be just as provincial in their own way as people from towns of 300. Yeah, you know, everyone has their, their own thing that they can um, get outraged by or, or get upset by that isn't actually re reflected in reality. And I have... Uh, being in Brooklyn, even if it's made me more liberal, and I and I have met a lot of fantastic people here, I've also seen the excesses of, of liberalism here too, which makes me think that is it just natural for everyone to, to come to these conclusions. Um, sometimes it's almost um, like a self-parody of living here, even though I have chosen to live here. I mean, you just have to kind of um, marvel at the absurdity at times and yeah, and it, summer homes, you mentioned that, you know, <laughs> uh, I think people in Brooklyn, a lot of times they... Um, They'll talk about um, privilege a lot, and I think that is a thing, but I think they're a lot of times projecting what they had when I meet journalists here whose 
mom and dad have paid for the rent and they, you know, summered in Martha's Vineyard, I think about how they're grafting that viewpoint onto what they believe a, you know, white Trump voter in rural Nebraska is. And I just think about the people I know who live paycheck to paycheck and wouldn't know what the hell they're talking about. Well, without getting too personal here, in a sense, if you are making your living as a journalist and writer, writing you know pieces and books as well and finding publishers in your life, in a sense, you're a blue collar guy like your dad, right? I mean, you're, you have a craft and you, you have to produce work to get paid, right? I mean, that's it. you're not immediately thrust into some digerati just by virtue of your profession. No, and that's, yeah. But I, I think a lot of times we are all portrayed that way, you know? Like all journalists can be portrayed. The, the when you know when people say mainstream media, they may group people like me into people who you know their dad was the editor in chief of the New Yorker or something, and they have uh, five homes. So um, yeah, I, I would I, I'm doing office work, but I mean I can't buy property. So how rich am you know, I? Uh, <laughs> Well, we'd be renting for a while. The thing is, is HVAC guys are much, much better and more important than all of us today on oh, this podcast. Yeah. Um, but if someone has a problem in Brainerd, it's a real problem. That my dad <laughs> needs to fix. I'm not fixing anyone's real problems. Right. I'm just giving ideas. Well, as we begin to wrap this up, I just want to throw something out there to you, which is this shift in, in policies. Uh, you, you know, in the early 2000s, when W was president, a conservative in Nebraska almost certainly would have supported the Iraq war and free trade. Fast forward to 2018, Donald Trump is president and most conservatives in Nebraska might well be opposed to the Iraq war and, and opposed to free trade. So th there was a debate last summer on a site called Heterodox Academy about whether the political spectrum exists and whether it's helpful. And it, it, between a couple of interesting guys, a professor named Hiram Lewis and a, a gentleman named Christopher Alejandro Gonzalez. And so what came out of that was the question I'll pose to you, you know, do tribes create the policies or do policies create the tribes? I mean, what, what's happening here? Yeah, I think a lot of it is the, I'll say the, the parties end up creating the tribes. I mean, it flows in both directions. Um, it's tough to determine a causal agent, but I think no one likes cognitive dissonance. And if they really, really, really identify with the political party and that party may flip on a given issue, as long as it's not the like one issue they care about. They may flip as well to go along with it. I, I just see a lot of that. I, I, I see it in the free trade stuff. Also, um, Catholics who will now support the death penalty because they're Repu you know the Republican who opposes um, abortion also supports it. You see it uh, on the left as well. People who previously probably would have never consented to um, reducing police funding are suddenly for it because the party's moving in that way. So... I, I just think we don't like to have this dissonance in our brain and not like we're like blind sheep, but we're more likely to make excuse and eventually go along with the position if that's the party we identify with and they're supporting the one or two things we care about most. So what's the way forward? How do we fix this? <sighs> yeah, um, that's the part I'm really bad at. <laughs> I don't have a great answer. I'm just saying here, here's all this bad stuff that happened. A few practical solutions, though, from what's happened in Nebraska is I think legislation represents the people the best when it's done through a ballot initiative. It's expensive to do everything that way, so you can only do probably a handful of things each year. Not even every state does that. But when an issue is presented in a single paragraph or two paragraphs, and it doesn't say it's R or D, and people have to sit there and think, you tend to get people backing laws like th that 
help them and that uh, most people, I mean, if the law gets enacted, it's because most people supported it, not just because a, a single party had that at their national agenda. You know, example, that was uh, Nebraskans have um, increased minimum wage. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and we were going to try to get medical marijuana as well, but that got thrown out. But, you know, I, I think drug decriminalization is something that would probably pass if it was put that way. And I, I just think that's a more helpful way on building around issues instead of um, building around a party. Because when you build around issues, you can find people who you may not agree with on other things, but you can work together on that certain thing. It's it's unrealistic at the federal level, but at the state level, I'd like to see more of that. And the, the nonpartisan Nebraska legislature, I mean, the open primary nonpartisan system there has made it more effective than neighboring states. And for probably 50 years, it made it really effective. So... I would love to see more down ballot races that way because that's where people are really affected. And, that, and that's like where um, the politicians represent them the most is local level, like your city council, your, your your county commissioner. Those are people you can actually reach who you may know, who may be able to actually do something for you. And the less you make them partisan, I, is, I think the more effective. But I don't have any solutions for what to do about federal races or our national politics because, gosh, uh, I keep saying it can't get worse and it does. So... Uh, I don't know where to start with that. Well, but there's, I think, a broad, maybe quiet constituency out there of single issue agreement on all kinds of things. I bet you most Americans would say they'd rather have some sort of, let's say, nationalized or single payer healthcare system over. Now, I, I don't personally want that, but as opposed to the five, six, seven, eight trillion we've spent in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. No, I, I and I do think there is consensus for that. I think most Americans would want. Um, disclosures on like campaign finance but that doesn't that issue doesn't move well um when it's you know done through party politics there 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 are a lot of little individual things like that you know in Colorado um which is a much more liberal state than Nebraska they've had people come together on more conservative issues i, I think they had um they had a thing with taxes I, gosh i can't remember the specifics and here i am bringing it up but they had people come together um, on this tax issue through a ballot initiative that they wouldn't have if it was done through the party politics. So I'm, I'm sure when you get to a local example, I mean, when you get to local uh, municipalities, you'll find all sorts of stuff like that where people probably agree, but if you force it through a binary system, they f- make it hard to do so because people don't leave their the parties or vote for the opposing party, you know, as often as they used to, even if they're influenced on particular issues like um, gay marriage. Think about how, you know, the um, huge shift in public opinion in the last 20 years, but the percentage of people who would leave a party over that uh, is very minuscule, even if they shifted their uh, viewpoints personally. Well, final question for you, Ross, is family. You bring it up at the beginning of the book. You strongly identify with your family. You have a sense of place and a sense of home as a result of your childhood. And not everyone's lucky enough to have a stable two parents, but they had their own struggles as you lay out in the book. Um, you know, how much does that matter? And, and, Politics apart, there's something conservative about that. And it seems like we have a, a progressive side of the aisle now, which is uh, creating people who live in places like Brooklyn who are not as attached, who don't have as much of a sense of place or family. Well, I think family matters a lot. I, but when I say family, it doesn't have to be just you know traditional nuclear. I think there's a lot of mixed family types I, I see. I mean, I walk, <laughs> it's going to sound very stereotypical of Brooklyn, but I mean, there's some fantastic um, lesbian couples who I talk to at the dog park who I think have great families. And so I think family in general 
is very important. And there there is a lot of data showing that um, people who get married, uh, not at a young age, but in their late 20s and 30s, and especially if they have college degrees, tend to build wealth much quicker than everyone else. Uh, I mean, you get statistically, if you get married around 30 and you and your spouse have a college degree, I mean, you'll, you'll have a better chance of making it than, than single people will. I think there's something to that. But um, I, I want that to also be inclusive of the messy lives that people have. You could still find family if, um, you know, you're in an LGBT household or your parents maybe split up and found different partners. But if I was going to be single or um, parent single, I mean, that would just be uphill struggle for me and uh, for my kids. And I think it would be harder to uh, um, obtain a good standard of living in my middle age. Well, Ross, I'm going to have to congratulate you because I think, I'm not sure, but I think you're the first person on my podcast over several years who suggested that people get a college degree. We tend to have a <laughs> lot of people suggesting the opposite. But look, ladies and gentlemen, it was, it was such a blast for me to read this book and to talk to someone a little bit outside my own uh, narrow blinders in life. Again, it's called Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. It's on Amazon. It's hot and fresh off the presses. Its author, our guest today, is Ross Benish, but it's spelled just B-E-N-E-S. So you can find him on Twitter at Ross Benish. And I'm going to really recommend that you check out this book. It's available in Kindle format as well. And I, I really enjoyed it. And I'm really interested as a, I guess, a libertarian is the term I'll use for myself today, a person who's becoming, I think, I hope less and less ideological, um, that we're, we're talking to people about issue coalitions and all kinds of ways to organize our society because the way we're organizing it at present ain't working. So all that said, Ross, hey, thanks a million for your time today. I, I really had a blast chatting with you here. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.